The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents Setting the Record Straight, where various Christian Reconstructionist pastors seek to understand and dissect the issues that are plaguing the church today, from the pulpit to the pew. We'll be in chapter 7 of the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah. So we'll be taking on only really four verses. But there's a lot here. I I didn't go through the whole chapter. Uh, I'm not going to go through the whole chapter 7 because it goes goes in and lists all the uh, genealogies that are there. And I'm not against genealogy. And I'll tell you, one thing about reading through the Bible throughout the year and listening through the Bible and learning... Is when you start hearing so and so begets, 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 and people are like, oh, I don't want to hear this. The thing is, is when you realize the genealogist, how things go, transpire, and you're reading somewhere else, and all of a sudden it mentions a name, and so and so, father of so and so, and you're like, oh, here's the whole tie in. And so it's exciting, especially as you see many things coming down toward, going toward the New Testament, especially um, when you see tie ins throughout the history of the people of God. And when I say people of God, that means all of God's people from, from the beginning to today and on to after this. And so, <coughs> this morning, I'm going to take on a subject. I want to take on a subject, uh, and, and I use it more as, I know I'm using it in a topical sense, but, and for many of us, we've heard this before to an extent, but I want to kind of answer some questions, maybe as I, I said, the purpose of this is a Christian uh, Reconstructionist perspective. How do we apply the truth that we have? How do we answer others according to the truth of God's Word? And so when someone brings up some of these things, I, I want to answer some of the questions. So today, really, the, the title of today would be the biblical response to immigration and borders. And see, what happens is over the last few months, <clears throat> month or so, we, we see people in our country with the same old debate regarding immigration, legals and illegals, building walls, Splitting up families, locking them in detention centers. We hear all this stuff. Now, I've heard the arguments about how they are taking our tax dollars. These people are coming over and they're taking our tax dollars for welfare and how they're stealing our jobs and all kinds of other statements that can't be backed up usually. It's usually just the same old propaganda. But the one that takes the cake for me is, and this is why I wrote it this way so I could get it out, is the arguments from supposed conservative Christians who quote and misrepresent Scripture to uphold a closed door to the foreigner and the press. Mm-hmm. Now, I know I spoke about this. About, remember the week that our wealth, we had problems with our wealth uh, about a couple weeks ago, about two weeks ago. I ended up doing, I preached a message on the least of these. And I'm not, it's part of that, but this really takes it to the point of why is it the debate regarding open borders, closed borders, and why does it get, why does it get so, uh, I guess the thing for me is people take it to an extreme situation that doesn't even exist. Okay? Uh, but there's this thing that um, there's two passages that keep getting used and keep getting thrown around. One of them is very familiar to most of us, Romans 13, 1 through 7. And I'm going to read that to you. And we'll kind of kick it off this way. I'll read this passage, and I'm going to read a passage out of Nehemiah, uh, verses 1 through 4 of chapter 7. It says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. 
and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who will resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Now, I want to—I want you to understand, we're going to break this down in a moment. That's one aspect. So the very first thing that we talk about borders or immigration... When we talk about any of these aspects, the one thing that comes up is, you know, listen, we have laws in this country, and we need to respect those in authority over us. They use Romans 13. We'll get to that. The other one is, they keep quoting another group of of gentlemen that I've been dealing with have been quoting Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah. It just happens that I've been preaching through the book of Nehemiah, and I'm trying to still find these passages of Scripture that they're talking about. Because in Nehemiah... They, they take and advocate for the building of the wall in order to keep people out, to keep enemies out. So we need to build a wall on the border to keep enemies out. Now the question is, if you want to keep the enemies out, great, but that's not the reasoning. It's, it, immigrants are not enemies. Immigrants are people. And so that's where I'm going. So if you want to keep enemies out, by the way, almost every terrorist thing that has happened in our country, we've got to remember this, either was homegrown or... We brought them in legally, according to the statutes. We trained them, even showed them how to fly planes and did all the rest of it. So let's just remember that. So they, it's not through illegal immigrants coming in and terrorizing the country. It's all through illegal processes or homegrown. So, so here it is, Nehemiah 7. This is, the, this is the key, and I want you to listen. This is where they get it. Nehemiah 7, 1 through 4. Now when the wall had been built, and I had set up the doors, and the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hananiah, and Hananiah, the governor of the castle charge over Jerusalem. For he was more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, Let not the gates of Jerusalem be open until the sun is hot. And while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts, and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. Okay, so I want to start here. This is a passage of Scripture. They put, they built the wall back, it was finished, they put the doors and the gates, and they closed them. Well, that's a great way to read the Scripture, or read into what you want, but that's not what it said. Okay, so let me take care of some of these and some of the oppositions that we had today. Firstly, I want to say this on your notes: borders and gates are less about governing authority and more about government boundaries. They're less about governing authority and more about government boundaries. And I, you can go ahead if you're actually going to put it up there because those who govern this, that part A of, of, of point number one. Those who govern will be faithful and God-fearing. This is where some of our some of, some others disagree 
They believe that you should follow the authorities because God has placed all authority over you. You should follow them, I guess, to the depths of hell in order to honor God, but I, I don't agree with that. Those who govern are to be faithful and God-fearing. And I'll make a point of this. That, that was what, what, did he, what did Nehemiah say about his brother? He appointed his brothers. What? Why? Because they were what? They were faithful and more God-fearing than anyone else. He, 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 here's the thing. They're his brother. His brother as well. So he can trust that, that he's seen the relationship. They've been by his side the whole time. Who was it that came to Nehemiah before he even came to the city? It was his brother who told him what happened, right? These are people who are emotionally invested, physically invested. They're, they're there and they see the purpose. And so he, here he is. He looks for faithful and God-fearing men. That's, that was the key. The ones who are going to be in charge, the ones who's going to raise the, uh, take care of the daily responsibilities of the city need to be faithful and God-fearing men. Well, I, I look at this, and I actually look at this from a perspective. This is not a, uh, a once-in-a-lifetime chance or once-in-a-lifetime situation that we're talking about. Even in 2 Samuel 23, verses 2-4, through it says, The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. A person who reigns or rules or whatever, however they do it, when they do it in fear of God and faithfulness, what we have is we see prosperity come. We see uh, we see uh, life and fullness of life, abundant life, and we look at that. When we look at how things are supposed to be done, and I'm not going to go through and quote the whole things this morning, but I think of any, when we come from any sphere of government, of any type of government, when you look at, when you talk about uh, an elder in the church, what did it tell them to be? There's qualifications in 1 Timothy 3. It talked about being... Uh, the husband while my sober mind is self-controlled, respectable, hospitable. There's always, you, you understand that it says they're not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, quant quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if one doesn't know how to manage his household, how can he care for God's church? There's always these lists of things. And one of the things is, if you want to look at it, that's a God-fearing man. That's a man who is faithful to the Word of God, who's God-fearing. When you talk about uh, raising up children, and, and, and I know it's in the context I'm using this, but it tells us in Ephesians 6, it says, children obey your parents in the Lord. It tells you what? Honor your father and mother and all that. But what does it, it say? Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. There's a responsibility there for the parents, no matter what. It's not just saying you honor me because I'm, I'm the boss. You honor what I'm doing because I'm the dad or mom. It's because of a, of a faithful purpose behind that. And we teach it as we go. Notice that in every sphere, state, church, family, or self, there not to be a law unto oneself. There is a specific government that's given there, and that's under God. They are to, that, and that's point B. They are to uphold, under point 1B, they are to uphold God's law, not create law. And we are definitely getting some rain. Thank you. 
We are to uphold, they are to uphold God's law, not create God's law. I keep telling you, Shelly, that we just need a bigger TV. <laughs> that ain't happening. So, when we look at the scripture of Romans 13, for example, it tells everybody to be, every person should be subject to the governing authorities. And it says, For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Let's just stop there. If authority only exists because God has created it or God has made it, and those that exist have been instituted by God, then we naturally have to say that that authority, whatever it is, is to be under God. And not just saying, just because you write a statement, um, one nation under God, on the back of your car, does not make that authority under God. That authority is to place themselves under God and His law. And that's what I'm saying. They're to uphold God's law, not create law. And they're, they're, of course they're not terror to good. They said, we know that, but, but here's the thing. is When we don't have a standard for what is good and bad, what is good, righteous, and unrighteous, when you, when you have a law unto oneself, it's lawlessness. And so if there's any form of government that departs from God's law, it becomes lawlessness. For the magistrate to determine good or bad, there must be a standard. This is not a standard of democracy or consensus of the people, but according to God's word. When the governing authority is lawless unto God, do we submit to lawlessness? That's what the thing. Do you subject yourself to lawlessness? Now, I know there's lawlessness in the country. That doesn't mean that I, I automatically did, I do some disrespectful for every police officer that comes through. I don't do that. It's not about that. But the question is, do we submit to lawlessness? Do we reject it and ignore it? There are times when we reject a law that's lawless and ignore it because it's lawless. When you do that, you must also be willing to pay the consequences of those things and be willing to stand upon it. Do we rebel against it? That's a whole other aspect. And there are some things that, no, you don't rebel against. There are things that you don't need to. But just ignoring it in general will, will take its course. So there's, there's there to uphold God's law. See, and I'm, I'm just, this is just part of it. So see, borders therefore determine how far the governmental jurisdiction of a nation, state, county, or city goes. Not how one moves from one to another. How do you know where West Columbia is from here? There's a city limit sign, right? You know when you came into town, here's Sweeney. You know when you go when you go from here, if you kept on going down 35 and you keep going toward Bay City, you enter Matagorda County. If you take off and you go um, you go down I-10 far enough, you're going to leave the state of Texas and you're going to go into where? No, other way. Or Louisiana, or you go where? To the... To the deadlands. We're going to go to New Mexico and on, right? We can go. We can leave and go out of state, can we? That there's boundaries, but that has nothing to do with the movement of people. That just happens to mark where a jurisdiction ends. We know if you go far enough south, there's a point in time when there is a crossing of a border. It just happens that we use the Rio Grande River, correct? Right. We use it as our 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 our, our place. Uh, of jurisdiction, but we know that one country is there, but that's what I'm getting at. 
it determines how far the governmental jurisdiction goes, but not how one moves from one place to the other. That's right. You can have qual. You can say, "Well, I have. I would like to know who's in the country," and you can do certain things. Anyways, we're not going to go there yet. But here's the thing. Ultimately, Psalm 24. We know this because I use it quite often. What the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all those who dwell therein. That is the key, because all that is created. Beyond jurisdictional boundaries is the Lord's. Amen. It's not ours. It's not a country's. It belongs to Him and under Him. Psalm 74 says, and I, and I love how, how this plays together and, and God use, and using His Word. Verses 12 through 17 he says, Yet my God who is from old working salvation in the midst of the earth, you divided the sea by your might. You broke the, the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the heads of the Leviathan. You have gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. You split open springs and brooks. You dried up every ever-flowing streams. Yours is the day. Yours also the night. You have established the heavenly lights and the sun. You have fixed all the boundaries of the earth. You have made summer and winter. And when we talk about boundaries of the earth, we're not going to misuse this. We're not talking about just that God has just set the boundaries of a country. He has not set the boundaries of a state. Although He does those things and He rules sovereignly over that. But that's not what it says. He said this far the water should go and there's land there. That's the creation ordinance. Genesis chapter 1 right there is what He's talking about. And when He judged... The earth, according to the unrighteousness, with the, when we talk about Noah and the ark and all those things, when he did that, what did he do? He allowed that which to live, which he wanted to live, and he took the life of that which he did not. When I look at this, I'm, I go further than that. And Acts 17 is a very powerful scripture. It says, So Paul's standing in the midst of the area because he stands before the pagans, basically. Men of Athens, I perceive in every way you are very religious. <laughs> there are a lot of religious people. That does not mean God-honoring. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. They had an altar to everything. They added one to the unknown God just in case they missed one. And he said... What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by men, nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet He is actually not far from each one of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being, as even some of, our own, of your own poets have said, we are indeed His offspring. But then, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man, the times of ignorance God overlooks, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man who is, He has appointed, and of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. Amen. And so when we look at this, it's not about, it's not about 
a, a gov- the boundaries are about governmental jurisdictions. But the thing is, that when we look at God is overall, He is the owner of all things, He's the creator of all things, and He has allotted us to be born where we are at a period of time. Yes, all these things. You did not have to do, nothing you did had anything to do with whether you are born in this country or you're born from another country. God placed you there in this time, at this time, for this purpose. And it had nothing to do with you. People are not born in, in South America, in South American countries, or Central American countries, or anything like that, because they chose to be. God placed them there for a reason. God has allowed them to endure and go through many things that we will never have to go through and endure as far this side of this side of this life. We never, we have not had the struggles. I mean, we were joking when yesterday Eli was talking about Dad. I'm, I'm hungry, and we're out there working outside, and I'm like, it's like I haven't had my snack. I'm like. You just ate more protein than most people get in a whole day yeah. in other countries. It's no big deal. You're not hungry and you're just used to getting a snack at 10 o'clock. You just missed your snack. It's just like I didn't get my daily dose of what have you. I ain't going to go there today either. But some, some days I need it now midday. Uh, anyways, but, but we look at this. In all things, God has allotted these times and these places. And this is why I look at it. When we talk about governing authorities, when we talk about jurisdictions, we talk about that we come to this place, you have to get it to this place to understand what He has done. Secondly, this is two. And this is why I want to look at it. A gated city or a nation is not a closed city or a nation, but one of welcome and self-control. There's nothing wrong with having a gate on a city. A gated city. A gated city is not a closed city or a nation, but one of welcome and self-control. There's something to say about a city that has, has done, who has built themselves this, this supposed wall. This wall here is a literal wall, but there is a different type of wall we can look at a, a hedge about us of, of God's word and the standards of yes. foundation like none other and so that's why I'm looking at when they built this city it's not it's not to say this is a closed door I mean even the stinking thing that was said hey just remember heaven has a gate and not all who can get her in there I'm like is that really where you want to go with this conversation and Nehemiah said, he said, what in that theme passage I'm using verses, in verse 3, he said, Let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot, and while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. What does that mean? That means there is a period of time when light has come up, from the time of daybreak, basically there's plenty of BLC until it's the time they, they stand guard, until they shut the gates of the city at night. But it doesn't say it's a closed gate. It doesn't say who can and cannot come in. It says there's an open gate, there's an open time, and there's a time that the gate will shut. See, A, open borders isn't about doorless hinges, but freedom under God's law. I've seen people post this, and I like that. This is the reason why I'm, I'm not just trying to talk about social media. It's not. I want you to hear the reasoning and go back to Scripture. The reasoning says if you believe that we should have open borders, why don't you take the front door off your house? That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. I mean, you think that you take whether a door has, a door's on a house or not, if someone wants to bust in, they can't get in. 
I mean, what do we? What do we? We're all raised in the same way. If you're raised in the South long enough, what locks only keep honest people out? Yeah, right. Right. It's a very simple thing. But when you have an open door policy at your house, when someone says, "I have an open door policy," and uh, you show up, and they're like, "Well, it wasn't that open. We have we have some criteria we need you to have." It's a little bit different. Open doors isn't about about doorless hinges. It's about freedom under God's law. See, there's an example in Scripture in, Pro, in the book of Proverbs, which is a book of what? It's wisdom, right? That's It's stated one way, and we can take that same stated one thing, say one way, and reverse it and use it in the same appropriate way. In Proverbs 25, 28, he says, A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. I want you to take it in a sense. A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. What are we talking about here? The, the very thing that they were prior to Nehemiah coming was what? A defenseless city. Open borders isn't about whether we're safer or not. Closing the door and closing the gate does not make you safer. I want you to understand this. If you ever study warfare and you understand siege, all they needed to do with siege is cut off your water supply and your food supply long enough and everybody inside died. When you take into account of 70 AD, you would understand when they said when when you know the, the those who will basically those who run to the hills who run to the mountains are going to be the ones who are going to struggle the most they were starved out there's even accounts of people doing horrendous things with their children I mean I'm just telling you flat out the, the persecution that went on not only that but just but it's, it's not about doorless hinges it's not about this aspect of closed or open here's the, the aspect that we need to look about at it Numbers 9, verses 9 to 14. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If any of you, uh, one of you, or your descendants is unclean, though touching uh, through touching a dead body, or is on a long journey, he shall still keep the Passover to the Lord. In the second month, on the fourteenth day of twilight, they shall keep it. They shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall leave none of it until morning, nor break of its, any of its bones. According to the, all the statute for the Passover, they shall keep it. But if anyone who is clean and is not on a journey, fails to keep the Passover, that person shall be cut off from his people, because he did not bring the Lord's offering at its appointed time. That man shall bear his sin. And, this is why I underlined it, if a stranger sojourns among you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, according to the statute of the Passover, and according to its rule, so shall he do. So shall he do. You have one statute both for the uh, sojourner, the foreigner, and for the native. Do y'all know what that the requirement? If you if you look back as it came out of the Passover, what was the requirement for the foreigner who wanted to take the Passover? He had to what? Yeah, he, he and his household had to be circumcised. That was key that they took upon the law of God and were following that if they were going to observe it. And there was one law for both the foreigner and one law for the native. I hope it, I'm not setting you up, but I'm just, I'm, I might be. But I want you to think Numbers 15 goes on. He goes on and says the same thing in verse 15. 
It says, There shall be one statute for you and for the stranger who sojourns with you, a statute forever through your generations. You and the sojourner shall be alike before the Lord. One law and one rule shall be for you and for the stranger who sojourns with you. So the person who comes, the person who seeks to come, that's foreign to our land, foreign to our people, what is it? We have the same rule. That's what it's saying. When we hinder the poor, the widow, the orphan, and the sojourner from entering just because of their position, just because of their skin color, just because of where they came from, then we are oppressing them, and the Lord will judge us severely. Many sojourners are already oppressed, and therefore they come seeking peace and rest. You understand that most people who come to this country are coming for peace and rest. They've been... Women have been beaten and raped and children, I mean, people, their whole families have been killed and slaughtered. And you people are like, well, you need to have witness of this so we can take you into this country. That, that is what they're coming, they're escaping. Not many people walk for weeks on end, months on end, ride trains where they get raped and have to be robbed and everything else in order to get away from that type of thing. They don't just come because of welfare. Some sojourners come wanting a better future and to work. And therefore, our rejection of them does not profit us or them, but creates an economic, I say economical stalemate. Think about this. And I want you to, this is why I kind of, it could have been just a podcast type, but I want you to think about this. More workers means more product to be produced, creating more jobs, which means more profit and more tax revenue. This creates a need for more housing. It creates a need for more grocery stores. More food creates a demand for greater agriculture, which creates more jobs and a demand for more workers. All this is profitable and is biblical capitalism. Think about this. Republicans slash conservatives, whatever you want to call them, are supposed to be free market capitalists. But their own policies are just as socialistic, fascist, whatever you want to call it, as their opponents when it comes to immigration. And they do this under the auspices of the fear of a greater welfare burden. Why are they scared of a welfare burden? If the laws don't allow for it. And secondly, they hold the majority in this House, the Senate, and the Oval Office. If they need to change the law, they can just do it. Because of their policies are humanistic. It's because their policies are inconsistent and unbiblical that they do this. They create a fear based on something that can't even happen. And they could control it if they thought it was going to happen in the first place. They could go tomorrow, write a law, into, basically vote on a law, do it however, however much time it takes, write the bill, put it in, both houses approve it, president signs off, of it, it's done. No one gets welfare that comes across as an immigrant. Although it's already there. Absolutely no. Only citizens, and that's a whole other subject which we're going to get to. See, open borders, B, isn't about government welfare, but God's provision through God's people. I'm not for open borders, borders because I want everybody to be on the, the national dole. I mean, when you're 23, 24, I don't know, $27 trillion in debt, I don't think we need to take on more and expect that the government's going to bail us out. No, we're told in Scripture what we are to do as His people, what He expects from us. And it's not something that's very, it's not hard on us. It's not something that's incapable, we're incapable of doing. Leviticus 19, 9-10, it says, When you reap the harvest of your land, 
You shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after the harvest. You shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. Deuteronomy 14, 28-29. At the end of every three years you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in the same year and lay it up with your tent within your towns. And the Levite, because it has no portion or inheritance with you, and the foreigner, the fatherless, the widow, who are within your towns, shall come and eat and be filled, that the Lord your God may bless you in all your work of your hands that you do. Now understand, remember, that's what we call the poor tithe. It's really not a poor tithe, but it's, it's really a way to look at it. It's you bring it in, and you honor, you honor God at this tithe. Every three years. Deuteronomy 24, the 14 through 15. I only skipped two verses because they had to do with something else. And they go right back to the content. You shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy. Whether he is one of your brothers or is one of the foreigners who are in your land within your town. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets. For he is poor and counts on it. Lest he cry against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. Remember, I go on, it says, You shall not pervert the justice due to the foreigner or to the fatherless, or take a widow's garment and pledge. But you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and that the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this. It goes on and talks about the same type about when you reap a harvest in your field, you leave it. But I want you to understand, you may not have been a slave in Egypt. But you were a slave and dead, uh, dead in your trespasses and your sins. And Christ has redeemed you. He has set you free. We need to remember that these are a people who have been oppressed in a different way, maybe. They might be oppressed by their poverty, their hunger, or whatever it might be. But nowhere in Scripture does it say, let's restrict the free, uh, the free flow of people. We must look at this. Open borders is not about government welfare. See, we're to be God-honoring in our work so that we might be fruitful in all that we do. And through our fruitfulness, there is an abundance that overflows to the poor, the widow, the orphan, and the foreigner. We are to be fruitful in our work. Notice that in every case of charity, quote-unquote uncharity, there's work in these passages. When we get done with harvesting the fields, it says what? You don't go go back and get the rest of it that fell to the ground. You leave it. Why? Do the people are you going and gathering it for the for the poor or for the widow or the orphan or the foreign? No, they go and gather it themselves. That means they're working. That is biblical welfare, if you want to call it. Guess what? They didn't go out and gather today and come home and say, Well, someone gave this to me. No one gave it to them. They worked for it. Notice that there is not, that where there is work, there is to be no oppression. That means one of the things I always aspects of it I do is listen. I always make sure I have the funds available to me to pay a worker. If someone came to me after two days of work and said, "Russell, I really need this. I mean, if I don't, I'm gonna I'm gonna get kicked out of my apartment. I don't have food for my family. I don't have this." You think I'm gonna turn around and say, "Listen, buddy, I pay on Fridays, and you'll get your pay when you get it." When it's in your power to act, you act. And so the hired worker who is in that way, you don't take their clothes, you don't take other tools from them and pledge. What do you do? You take, when they've worked, they're worth their wages. Now I know a lot of companies, they don't keep cash on hand and they're not going to cut checks at the end of every day, but not everything is set up like a corporation. 
Not everything's set up in such a way that it creates difficulty. Notice where there is a celebration and sharing of the bounty of the Lord's provision, there is testimony of the glorious hope for those without inheritance in the Lord. Notice that when there is a time of that celebration, there is a profession of the glorious hope we have in Christ Jesus. See, when we give up our biblical responsibility to the poor and oppressed and so on and give it over to the government, it's antithetical to the gospel. We are sending, what we're doing, we're sending them a false savior who steals from the faithful worker to enslave and oppress the poor by creating dependency. When we rather preach the gospel that causes men to rely on the author and perfecter of our faith and we bear evidence of our faith by our works, they see freedom that sets them free. Amen. That's the difference between a secular form of welfare and a biblical form of charity or welfare. They see the hope of one who sets them free. And their hope is not in man. Their hope is in the Lord who's provided for me. That's right. And therefore they see they want that too. They realize that they can put a trust in someone greater than man. And so when they come to the U.S., they're not looking for a handout. They don't know what sometimes they're looking for. They don't. But when I go back in that scripture, in that book of Acts, and we can't go back there, you won't find it, but he says, that this is the thing, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. Why? That they should seek God and feel their way toward Him and find Him. And if we are a representative of godly, God-fearing, honoring, faithful men and women in our work and everything, what we do is we are proclaiming, along with our proclamation of the gospel, a living God who is an abundant provider. And they will see that. They want that. Thirdly and lastly this morning, I have no clue what time it is, but that's okay. I'll be quick. Protection and defense is not an issue of government oversight, but a personal government. Protection and defense is not an issue of government oversight, but of personal government. Now, I'll, I'll, I'll clarify this once I, I want to I'll reiterate. And, I, and if, you don't have to go to it, Grace, but the theme passage, he talked about he appointed guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, it says. Some of their guard, they are they, guard posts and some in front of their own homes. They were appointed. They had a personal investment in the city. That's what I want to think. I want you to understand. I'm not saying we that we ought to be naive to the fact that our of, of our country's defense. I'm not saying that we don't need to have a, some form of defense. I'm sorry, but I don't own big enough drones or what have you to defend our territory. Okay. Should be. You could, but I can't, I don't, and I don't have the finances to do it, and I don't have the time to maintain all that aspect. Because if you do it, it takes a specific thing. And I believe we ought to have a national defense system and oversight in place. I don't have a problem with that. That's all I'm talking about. But national defense, A, does not trump personal responsibility. I didn't read it. Huh? A national defense does not trump your personal responsibility. And I'm going to use a passage of Scripture that's going to seem odd, and I'm going to bring up a couple other little things just to think about it. Our national defense does not trump personal responsibility. 
Okay. In Deuteronomy 19.14, there's a law that's in place. It says, You shall not move your neighbor's landmark, which the men of old have set, and the inheritance that you will hold in the land of the Lord your God is giving you to possess. Understand, you're not to go and move a landmark. That means what? This is their the land that has been portioned for them and their family. Un, this is Trawick's property. You don't go and say, you know what? He's not really using it, and we move the boundary stone. Now, why is that important in the conversation that we're having right now? All the earth, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, right? All, all exists. But God has given me to be a steward over the part that He has planted in my feet. I've preached on that and preached on it. God has called us to be stewards, faithful stewards over what every aspect of what He gives us. Whether it be land, our employment, our families, He has told us to be faithful stewards. He expects us to be faithful in all that we do. See, within that boundary is personal responsibility. Ultimately, nobody else has has responsibility or authority under God for that boundary. Ultimately. When you place yourself under some other authority to do that, that means you're subjecting yourself to an authority. That means they rule over that boundary. So that means that which God has given you and has given you responsibility, you've abdicated that responsibility. And that's why when we talk about whether it be public schooling in that aspect... When you abdicate the responsibility of education to someone else, you're saying you have authority and you really, as a parent, don't have a say over what they're taught. And so by homes- in the sense of homeschooling or Christian education, you're choosing the education you want for your child, you're able to do that. But in the public education, you can't because that's not that you're advocating saying, I, 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 I'm not equipped to do this, I'm not going to do this, I'm going to allow someone who's better than me to do it. When you pay for Christian education, you might say, listen, you're not meeting the standard, so therefore I'm going to pull my kids out of that Christian school and I'm going to put them under another educator or another education or I'm going to homeschool. Homeschool, you're completely responsible. And when you fail in that responsibility, you're advocating a different, you're being disobedient to God for that responsibility. When we talk about this passage of Scripture, there's another passage which we don't have here, but y'all remember the passage of Scripture about that they're built like a a parapet, or like a wall around the top of your house. Right? They were said so no one would fall off and die. If you didn't do that, you were liable for their death. You knew there's a risk. It's no different today. Here's a great example of what we talk about, and I use this all the time. It's no different than a swimming pool and not having a fence around the swimming pool. When you do this and you just have kids and some kid runs off into your backyard or you don't have a locking gate mechanism, they can see it, and you don't have a way to lock them out, and they go in there and drown, yes, you didn't make that, you weren't responsible for watching that child, but you created an ability for them to do that. You did not keep safety in mind. And you have a responsibility for that life. In the same way when we look at this, the national defense, it does not trump our personal responsibility. God has given us a place and responsibility. And the thing is, is there's no room for cowards in this. There's not real, there's no there's no room for people who, who, who want to be pacifists in this. The only other thing under passivity means one thing. At this point in time, you have to advocate your God-given responsibility. And when you do that, you lose everything. You become a slave to someone or subjected to someone. In a place that God never intended for us. See, no one else has a, has under God has oversight for the boundary and the, or the work that goes on there. 
It's sovereign unto him alone. And that's why I said, it doesn't matter. To me, it's nobody's business who works on my property. It doesn't matter how much I pay them or don't pay them. It doesn't matter if they live here and I provide them housing or not. That's, that's my responsibility under God. When I walk off this place, that's different. Now, I'll share that. I have a very different opinion. I had someone very much rationalize why you need insurance to drive your car down the road and to register that vehicle. I, I completely, I'll agree with them on it. Because that's not my road. I, I mean, I might pay taxes, but that's not my road. Someone else is responsible for how that road is maintained. Someone else has to, in, in my vehicle, when I'm going down that road, if I'm not maintaining my vehicle to a certain satisfaction and I kill someone else, I'm responsible and I'm not doing it. They want to make sure people have driver's license. Okay, you can agree or disagree with it. That's fine. But what are we saying? They're just making sure that people, they want people to what? Know that they've been trained to drive a car. That's not your road. Believe it or not, my road ends at that road. That's the, that's the reality. As of right now, my road ends there at the end of my driveway. And so, uh, y'all came across several, y'all came across state lines, right? I mean, so that changed. Different people, different states, different jurisdictions, but we all have some things. that it, It'd be no different. I could say, I would prefer you to, if you're going to come out here and you're going to ride four-wheelers on my property, I want to make sure you have proper helmets on. I could say that on my property, this is what happened. Kids under this age aren't going to drive them. That kind of, I can do that because it's my property the same aspect. That's what I'm talking about. That's what, It's an application of the law. The law of God be, and finally, and this is the one, one final answer I want to do and be done today. The law of God does not apply to us just to a specific nation, but to all of God's people for all of time. To look at the laws regarding the foreigner in the Old Testament and say, well, listen, that was to the, the nation of Israel and that was not to us, so therefore it doesn't apply any longer. That's to say that the majority of the Word of God does not apply to us anymore. In fact, and, and my question always is, when was it abrogated? When did it end? I mean, when was it done away with? Here's the thing. In Malachi 3, I quote it all the time, but we're going to go a little before that. It says, I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, and against those who thrust aside the sojourner, the foreigner, and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. I will say this. The problem with our country, the problem with most people, the problem with most Christians in churches this morning who are hearing a pastor telling them some kind of sermon about how how they need Jesus and they've already had him. The reality is here. This part is you're you're of equal you're of equal concern and disrespect disrespect or whatever you want to call it as a murderer someone who commits adultery, or what have you, <coughs> if you are thrusting aside the foreigner. Mm-hmm. See, the law of God doesn't apply to a specific nation or to specific people in the sense of peoples, but it always applies to the people of God. And, and, I, and I take this and, and I use and I bring it forward to the New Testament 
in Malachi and First Peter two play hand in hand. He tells him, he says in First Peter two, and this is what I finish up with today. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by man, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. I want to say this, when we, when we set aside the word of God in any way, we act like those who are destined to hell. We say that we, we, we basically, we see Jesus as a cornerstone, but we just don't lay our lives on the foundation of him. Let's go on. He says, but you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. Every person within the body of Christ within the church today needs to understand this aspect. You did not deserve the mercy of the living God. And because of that, who are we to say, look at what I have and look at that. I'm an American. That puts me different. I mean, you could have been born anywhere according to God's plan. You could have been born at any time. You could have been born a Jew in the middle of Nazi Germany. But he didn't. He placed you here and now. And His people are to be a people who proclaim the excellencies of Him who called them out of darkness into His marvelous light. We're to be that people. Because of that type of thing, He says, He goes on, He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Here it is. So when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Not see your certificate of authenticity of Americanship. Not your birth certificate. Not who your mama or your daddy was. What was it? That they may see your actual work Produced by faith. As people of God. And I will tell you this, that there are people of God who are coming to this country who are being oppressed. Mm -hmm. There are people and followers of Christ who look to this place of freedom for them to be set free. To have rest, finally. But that's... good dear brother of mine said we're getting, being called Marxists for this, this thinking. We're being called social justice warriors. And he said, I don't know about you, but it sounds pretty good that you know we want, we're, we want justice and that we're warriors for the kingdom of Christ. That don't sound too bad to me. But the reality is, is what they're saying is we are putting ideas and policies ahead of, of other things and we're being disrespectful and 
I want you to understand this. This aspect of, of the biblical response to immigration and borders is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. And that's across borders. I mean, who would say if you're going intentionally on a mission trip to Mexico or you're going intentionally on a mission trip to Guatemala or you're going intentionally on a mission trip to Africa or you're going wherever it might be, I'm going to Saudi Arabia. Why not? Why not my, like my uncle went to Uganda right in the middle of the war? You know, what, what does it matter? When we go, we say we're going to love our neighbors and ourselves. When we, people go to the abortion clinics, they want to go to the gates of hell for what reason? To love the least of these. Love our neighbors as ourselves. When people go and do it, when we preach the gospel, it's to love others as we love ourselves. That's what it means, the second greatest commandment. We look at it, but when they come to our borders and we shut them out and say, you know what, to hell with you, and that's exactly what we say, we need to rethink what kind of Christianity, is it Christianity at all, what kind of Christianity are we, we preaching and proclaiming? Because I guarantee not one church in this town is going to agree with me on that. Because there's a lot of other rights they'll put before illegal immigrant rights. Whether it's illegal, legal, what have you. And I, and I have to sit there and I have to talk to workers all the time. I, have to, I go on there and defend people and say, Listen, all these, start, these things, when I know that the people who have worked for me, they pay their taxes. They go and apply. They're illegal according to the law, but they go and apply for a taxpayer ID number and they pay taxes and our government says, I will take your money, but I will not. When I find you, I'm going to kick you out. You know why they do it? A lot of them do it. They make the scam. It's to hopefully make favorable, be favorable in the eyes of the government in their citizenship status as they apply for it. That they're hoping that it'll make it look, listen, when they're done with them, and they're no longer able to work, what happens? See ya. But here's the thing. These guys, and I sit there and I talk about it, these guys pay. I know one specifically. He pays the same self-employment tax that I pay every year. Has been doing it for over 20 years. Has been paying it in. And guess what? He will receive zero benefits because of it. But he does it so that he has some kind of leg to stand on if one day immigration comes by and finds him. You know what else he does? He owns a house. He pays taxes to his city. He owns his own home. He owns his own vehicles. Pays registration and taxes on those. Every He does everything that everyone else in this room does. Except... 40-something years ago, his mom and dad walking across the border. And this is basically the only wife he's ever known. That's the difference, folks. And when I look at that man, I look at that man as a brother, I look at that man as an image bearer of God, and I'll do whatever it takes. Ever it takes. Whatever. To make sure that he knows the Lord. They know that God provides all of those things. One of the things I remember sitting down in a meal, we sit, we sit down to eat lunch and we do, we pray. When I first started my company, we didn't do that. We didn't pray at, at, at our lunchtime. We just, everybody just did whatever, because they weren't all Christians. And the one thing is, is he stops. And he honors God. He, I told him one day, I said, listen, 
God has blessed me with all this. How can I not stop for a few moments to give thanks for the food he's about to feed us? He says, right. So he understands that he understands a lot more than most Christians do regarding that aspect. Folks, I want us to think about this is just an application of Scripture to a real life topic. And that's all we're why we're going through the book of Nehemiah. Thank you for listening to Setting the Record Straight. Join us on Facebook at the Reconstructionist Radio Discussion Group. And don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to listen to all of our podcasts and to download our free audiobooks. 